All right, we're good. Okay, everybody, good morning, and welcome to our show today. This is the second show of the 2014 season. Originally, I had planned to do this program right after the Bob Berg teleseminar that we did in December, because it really is a part two to that show, but um, life and actually more specifically death intervened, and I had to postpone it until today. So I hope it turns out to be worth the wait. I think it will. I'm I'm actually very excited about presenting this material because I truly believe that everyone here today will hear something that might just change their careers forever. That may be a little melodramatic, but I'll look forward to your feedback at the end and, and see if we did accomplish that, which if you missed part one of the show, which again was in December, it was a teleseminar called Conflict to Cooperation with my very special guest host, Bob Berg, who had just released a book called Adversaries into Allies. The subtitle of his book is Win People Over Without Manipulation or Coercion. That's a hard word to say, coercion. Anyway. During the show, we hit on several key points from his book, and we related them back to a real estate career, but we really didn't get a chance to dig in too deeply because, you know, obviously we only had an hour to do it. But a lot of what we did cover in that show is relevant to helping real estate clients make good decisions because, you know what, an awful lot of the time, as we're put in the position of guiding and advising our clients, it's it's really easy for us to feel like we're adversaries because what we want them to do or think they should do isn't necessarily what they want to do or feel they should do. So we end up in a conflict or an adversarial position with the very person that we're supposed to be looking out for. Also, of course, as real estate agents, um, we are typically paid on a contingent commission basis, which means that we only get paid if there's a specific outcome or result, and we're paid a percentage of the sales price. And so under that condition, it's not all that unusual for the quote-unquote right decision to guide our clients toward is the quote-unquote wrong decision for our own personal wants and needs. I hope that makes sense. Um, for example, let me give you some examples of that. If you are a listing agent, and you get a low offer on your listing, and your seller's vacillating about accepting it. They're considering taking the low offer. It can be so easy for, for you to push them to go ahead and take it um, because then you have a contract headed for, heading for the closing table. I've done that. Okay, Or maybe you have a buyer who's all revved up about making an offer on a house you know isn't right for him. It's so tempting to go ahead and encourage them to write it because, again, it puts you on the path to the closing table, and then you can stop showing this guy, you know, this guy houses, right? Okay, I've done that. Um, maybe you're interviewing for a listing, and the seller wants to list higher than you think is reasonable. That ever happened to anybody? <laughs> um, so you know that you need to guide him toward the decision of listing more reasonably, but it is very tempting to go ahead and list it too high so that you win the listing. Okay, I've done that one too. Um, the reverse, which probably doesn't happen all that often, but you have a seller who's willing to list lower than you think they can get, and you certainly don't want to talk them out of that because then you'll have an easy sale. I have done that a time or two as well. There are other, other situations uh, where your job is to help your client make good decisions, to list at all or not list. 
okay, to buy now or, or not buy now, to accept a house as is um, or to insist on repairs or maybe back out altogether, uh, to make repairs on a home for a buyer or to just say no. And I'm sure there's a lot of other decisions that we help with, but those are the ones I can think of. So if you have other ones that you'd like to chime in, um, maybe you can just you know send them in on the webcast screen, and as we have time, maybe we can talk about them specifically um, during the show toward the end. But for now, let's back up and talk about the whole decision-making concept as it applies to a real estate agent and, and a client, a real estate client. Are you even wondering, or are you wondering if it's even part of your job description to help your clients make decisions? Aren't, they, aren't you supposed to just present three options and, and let them choose? And if they have any questions about those options, direct them to their attorney. Or maybe conversely, you're thinking, aren't you supposed to tell them exactly what to do? And doing that with carefully practiced scripts and secret phrases so that they'll do as they're told without question. What's all this about guiding them to the right decision? Well, I suppose that the subject is up for debate, and I'm not the final authority on what exactly a real estate agent job, job description is, but since this is my show, you're going to hear my opinions today. Hope, that, hope that's okay. And my opinion is, yes, it is a part of the job description of a professional real estate agent who is acting in the best interests of their client to actively and, and respectfully guide the client as they're making decisions in a real estate transaction or a lack of transaction as, as the case may be. But not only do, do I feel that it's a part of your job, it's also a lot of fun to be an integral part of the team, to ensure that you and your client are, are working together toward an outcome. And even if that outcome doesn't quite suit you, your client will know that you're on their team, you're on their side, and they'll love you forever and ever for that. That really is a beautiful thing because it will almost certainly result in future business for you, even if this particular deal falls apart. What, what I really hate, what really gets on my nerves about traditional real estate training is the focus on objection busters and pushing off the fence. Okay, seriously? I mean, how disrespectful are these terms in the first place? Would you want your reasonable objection to something busted? Or would you appreciate, you know, some smarty pants real estate agent trying to push you off a fence? That mindset alone is enough to create a wall or an adversarial relationship between two people. So let's just do away with the whole idea of objection busting and fence pushing. Deal? Okay, you don't you don't need objection busters. You don't need closing techniques. You don't even need talking points when helping your clients make good decisions. You just need some common sense, some integrity, and some decent communication skills. And as we're going to talk about here more in a bit, a true desire to do your best to get your client the best possible outcome, which fortunately will almost always reward you. It's maybe not right away, down the road, I promise you. So, Here's what we're going to do today. Um, first, I'm going to lay some ground rules, some kind of big picture ground rules, um, basic concepts to live by when you're guiding your clients. If you follow these ground rules and make them an integral part of your approach to doing business, you'll find that your conversations with clients will go much smoother and they're going to be much more likely to do as you advise. All right. One thing I want to talk about before we get to the ground rules is the, the intent 
is your intention as you're guiding your clients to, to the right decisions for them. Because some of the strategies we're going, to be, we're going to talk about today, a lot of the strategies we're going to talk about today can actually be used manipulatively um, and could actually be used sort of to harm your clients instead of to help them. And I don't want these strategies to come across as sounding like something that I'm teaching you how to manipulate people or, as Bob Berg's book said, coerce them. That's not the intent. Here's the thing. Yes, the strategies I'm going to teach you today will help you get your client to do what you want them to do, but here's the thing. I'm working under the assumption that you want what's best for your client. And therefore, when you're being helpful during the decision-making process, you're doing so with every intention to see the best outcome possible for your client. Okay, I can't stress this enough. When your client wins, you win, even if your payday is delayed as a result of the advice that you give your client. Okay, so please, 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 just as you're listening today and you, you hear something, you're like, gee, that sounds a little manipulative. Um, it is, and it can be used manipulatively, but if your, mind, if your mind is pure, if your intent is pure, that you want your clients to get the best possible outcome for them, then everything I'm going to tell you today is, you know, perfectly soulful. <laughs> okay, I hope that makes sense. All right, so let's get to the ground rules. Okay, ground rule number one. Always, always, always put your client's interests first. Unless you're able to do this, you're not going to be effective in helping your client make a good decision. And what's more, your client's going to feel that. Your client's not going to trust you, even if they're not exactly sure why they don't trust you. But when that happens, you know what they're going to do? They're going to dig in their heels, uh, whatever opinion they happen to have, and they're not going to be willing to consider your advice, even if deep down they think you're right. I've had this happen to me almost every time I've been the client of a real estate agent on my own personal real estate. I can tell that they're looking first and foremost at protecting their time and their paycheck, so I dismiss their opinions as self-serving. Okay, Is that silly of me to do? It might be, because maybe the advice they're giving me is actually what's best for me, but I can tell their intent is not pure. Okay, Their intent is not that they're looking out for my best interests. They're looking out for theirs. So. This, may, this is difficult to do. Again, the way that we're compensated, it can be difficult to do. But once you get in the habit of it, if you can sort of force yourself to push the thoughts of a paycheck out of your mind when you're talking with your client, it'll become second nature. Okay? And it really, it really won't be an issue. I mean, it will from time to time, especially when you know, you're having a really slow month. But for the most part, you will get more into the habit of behaving more consultatively than, than salesy. And um, your clients will feel that. They will trust you and they will refer you to others. Okay, so that's ground rule number one. Always make sure your client's interests come before your own. Okay, uh, ground rule number two, somewhat sort of related to number one, but not exactly, is always be on your client's side. Always support your client. Even if you don't necessarily agree with them, I can promise you that arguing with a client about their position isn't going to change it. Again, if you argue with your client, um, they're just going to become more committed to their position. And I'm going to give you some examples of this here in a little bit, of how you can be on your client's side 
even if you're going to perhaps try to persuade them to see things a different way. Okay, ground rule number three, and this is huge. When you're working with your client, when you're having conversations with your client, use the words we, our, and let's. Not you, I, okay? We, our, and let's. So we are on the same team. We have a house to sell. We have a problem to solve. Okay, let's do this. Um, and I'm going to give you some specific examples of that too. But um, this is huge. Okay, so we, our, let's. Okay, so those are our ground rules. Let's get to some specific strategies and um, approaches to, to helping our clients make the right decisions for them. Let's talk first about reverse psychology. I couldn't really think of a better, a better term for this. Um, I wanted to because the term reverse psychology inherently sounds manipulative. Um, but when used properly, I don't, again, when, and when I say properly, I mean when used in, with the intent of getting your client to do what's best for them, it can be extremely powerful. I looked up a definition of it, and I'm going to read it to you right now. Reverse psychology, a persuasion technique involving the false advocacy of a belief or behavior contrary to the belief or behavior which is actually being advocated. This technique relies on the psychological phenomenon of reactance, which, in which a person has a negative emotional response in reaction to being persuaded and thus chooses the option which is being advocated against. There's a lot of three- and four-syllable words in there, and it's kind of complex, but basically what they're saying is that if you want somebody to do something, advise them to do something else, and their contrarian nature will kick in and... Um, they'll be more likely to do what it was you told them not to do, basically. Okay? Um, so here are some examples of how you can use reverse psychology to help guide your clients toward the right decisions. Okay. Um, when working with a buyer, one of the things I, I did was I would set the – well, I would set the expectation that – let me rephrase that. It wasn't an expectation. If the buyer were to ask me, you know, how long is this going to take? Um, how many houses are we going to look at? Um, I would say something along the lines of, you know what, we have all the time in the world. We'll look at, it, at as many houses as it's going to take for you to, to make the right decision, for you to figure out the right house for you. Okay, I have all the time in the world. Now, that's the message I want to get across. I mean, I do want to get that message across, but a lot of times the buyer will say, oh, gosh, I don't want to spend the next six months looking at houses. I want to find one in a, in a few weeks. Then they've said it. You haven't. You don't have to say, well, I'm going to show you three houses and you're going to make a decision. Because if you say that, a lot of real estate agents use that approach, and they say it works, and maybe it does. But to me, I would mentally start arguing with that and say, yeah, like hell, uh-uh. You're going to show me as many houses as I want to look at. It ain't going to be three. Okay? So that's one way to use reverse psychology is just, hey, I have all the time in the world. You know, if it takes us six months to find you a house, I'm here with you. The other thing I did when working with new buyers was um, I would tell them on our first outing, I would say our first outing together is a fishing expedition. I'm going to show you seven to eight houses. 
You probably may like, you may like one of them. You may not like any of them. And that's okay. Our purpose today is to get you to start forming opinions on the types of houses that you like. I can guarantee you, you're not going to buy a house today. You know what? A lot of times they did. And so, you know, not that I'm trying to push them to buy a house that day, but I'm letting them off the hook, which we're going to talk more about here in a minute, and not pressuring them to make them feel like they need to be making a decision that day so that then they'll feel like they've got to push back against me. And um, let's see. All right, another way to use reverse psychology is when you're talking with a seller who wants to list higher than the market's going to, to allow right now. They just are, okay? What I would say is instead of trying to push them, no, that's not what the market, you know, that, that's too high, we can't do that, what I would say sometimes would be, you know what, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing the data here to support that price right now, but you know what, do you want to get together in six months? And um, maybe the market will have improved by then. I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, it might have improved by then. And, you know, we could just stay in touch over the next few months and then, you know, reconnect in, in six months or so. No, of course they don't want to do that. You know, they want to sell now. They want to list now. So when you say something like that, if that's indeed the case, they're going to come back and say, oh, my gosh, no, I want to, I want to sell now. What's it going to take to sell now? They've asked you the question. Now they'll listen to your answer. Okay, we're going to talk more about talking with sellers about pricing and price reductions and that sort of thing soon, but that is one approach you can use is, well, you know what, let's just connect in six months and see if the market's changed. Um, when you're interviewing for a listing, here's another technique you can use when you're interviewing for a listing and you're competing for it. You know there's lots of other agents out there who are, you know that the seller is talking with other agents. And they say, well, you know, what's so special about you or why should I pick you? over all these other great agents I'm talking to. My response to that, it's very tempting to, to market yourself, right, to answer the question, to tell them why you're so great, tell them why the other agents aren't great, right? Well, I would usually respond with, you know, I'm sure whoever you're talking to is competent and they can probably get your home sold. So what I, and then I would say, what I, how I would make the decision would be, you know, who do you feel? knows the most about the neighborhood, knows the most about the area, and, you know, who are you talking to that you feel most comfortable, you know, who you will feel most comfortable working with over the next several months. And first, I mean, obviously, you hopefully prove to them that you do know the neighborhood very well, so they're saying, well, shoot, she obviously knows the neighborhood, and probably your competition, they may not. Um, and by responding that way, you're not pushing them, you're not criticizing their judgment and in interviewing other agents, and they may just say, wow, she, just didn't, she didn't tell me how great she is. She didn't put the other agents down. Wow, she really is great. Okay, I had great luck with that approach. Okay, so we talked about reverse psychology. Let's move on and hit a topic that came up during the show we did in December, and that's um, the always leave a back door approach. Um, as Bob Berg described, this is a chapter out of his book, Adversaries into Allies, what he described was when you leave a back door for somebody, when you're having a conversation or guiding them toward, toward a decision, the bigger the back door you leave, the less likely someone is to take it. And what's a back door? A back door is an out. Okay, so, you know, you're talking about, well, maybe you should take this course of action, but, um, but if you don't, that's okay too. 
So some examples of that, the example that he gave was he had a, um, well, a good example he uses in a lot of his books is let's say you're talking to a customer service person and you're trying to get them to do something for you. Let's say you're standing at a, you know, you're trying to get an upgrade to first class or something, you know, on a, at the airport. And, you know, you, you ask them if you can, you know, if there are any available and, oh, I'll completely understand if, if there aren't, um, you know, don't worry about it. I just thought I'd ask. Um, or another example, and I use this every day, is when you call somebody on the phone and they're not expecting your call, and you say, you know, hey, it's Jennifer. Um, is this a good time or are you in the middle of something? And 90% of the time they'll say, oh, gosh, no, this is a great time, even though they weren't expecting your call. And if they are in the middle of something, hey, you've let them off the hook, and they, you know, they can be honest with you about it without getting annoyed. But anyway, here are some real estate-related examples of always leaving a back door. Um, when you're talking with a seller, or a buyer, I suppose, but let's say a seller, you're talking to a seller and they're interviewing several several agents and you could say, you know, I may or may not be the right agent for you. That's why we're here to talk about it. Okay, so they say, well, why should I hire you? Well, that's why we're, that's why we're here, to figure out if I am the right agent for you. I may not be, and that's okay. All right, there's a back door. You're not pushing them to sign a listing agreement today. You're saying, shoot, I mean, we may not even be a good couple. Okay. Um, if you're talking with a seller about a price reduction, which again we'll talk about more more throughout the show, but if you're talking with them about a price reduction, you can say, you know, it. Here's what I think we should do, or here's what I, yeah, here's what I think we should do. <laughs> But it's your choice. You know, this is your home, and if, if you don't want to do a price reduction right now, I'm okay with that. You know, we'll just continue the way we're going. Okay? Um, it, when you get a, let's say that you're a seller, and the buyer does their inspection, and they send back a whole bunch of requests of things that they want the seller to fix. Again, you can say, well, here's the list, here's the things that the buyer wants us to do, wants us to do, okay? Um, Here's what here's what I think would be reasonable for us to do, but it's completely your decision. You can say no to any of these requests. You can say you can say no to all of these if you like, and and I'll do my best to, you know, to get you what you want. So, anytime you can give somebody, as they're making a decision, give them options, and one of the options being they can back out of whatever it is you're doing. That back door that you're giving them will help them make a better decision. Okay, so they don't feel pressured. All right. Um, next tip. Help your client blow off steam by being mad with them. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say that you're working with a seller and you get a really low offer. Insulting, okay? Terrible offer. And your seller's mad. It's tempting for you to defend the offer, isn't it? To say, oh, it's not that bad, or oh, they're just, you know, they're just starting out, or, you know, well, I told you this could happen, or, you know, defending that offer. In the mindset the seller's in when they first see that low offer that they're insulted by, they don't want to be comforted, okay? They don't want to be argued with for sure. So get mad with them. You know, go, I don't know what they're thinking. You know, your house is worth more than this. They know that. They must just be messing with us. 
you know, I mean, you don't have to throw a fit. You don't have to be a drama queen about it. But be mad with them, okay? Help them, you know, work through this and blow off some steam. They need to do that, okay? I guess the same could work if you're, you know, this would happen if you're working with a buyer and the counter, you know, they offer something they think is reasonable and the seller counters back. You know, and the buyer's like, so what? Do they want to sell their house or not? Do they not want to sell their house? Well, you could say, I don't know, maybe not. Shoot. Let them blow off some steam in a little while. You know, you can kind of regroup and decide on um, decide on your what you're going to do, either move forward or not. All right, let's talk about objections. Now, objections are, you know, when let's let's use the buyer because there's that's a lot easier to to explain. If you're working with a buyer and you know you go into a house and the the buyer starts objecting to things, and you know the house is great for them. Okay, I mean, this house has everything they want. Okay, so it's not perfect, but it has everything they want. It's at a good price. It's in the perfect location. And they're throwing out all these objections to it. How annoying is that, right? Well, a couple things here. A lot of times an objection is simply a stall. The buyer may be every bit as excited about this home as you are for them, but that makes them nervous. Okay, they don't want to have to make a decision right away, even though they're excited. So they start throwing out objections or stalls. It also means that they're somewhat mentally moving into this home. So if they're pointing out the things that are wrong, they're actually considering, you know, could I live here? If the house isn't right for them at all and they hate it, you won't hear objections. You won't hear as many objections, okay, because they're like, yeah, no, I'm not going to live here. You know, it doesn't matter whether they like the color of the granite countertops or, you know, the fact that the um, laundry is in the basement and they want it on the main floor. They don't care because they don't like the house. But if your buyer is throwing out those sorts of objections, like, you know, well, the closets are a little small, or I really don't like the color of this granite countertop, or I'd really like to have, you know, a main floor laundry room, what do you do when that happens? Okay? Nothing. Just listen. Okay? They're... They don't want you to bust their objections. They don't want you to tell them why, well, that that granite color is actually much more trendy than the color that you like. Or, oh, you'll love having the laundry in the basement. It gives you good exercise. Or, you know, those closets aren't small. They're bigger than my closet. I mean, you know, don't argue with them about their objections. Their objections are reasonable in their mind. And if you just kind of sit back and listen, um, even agree with them. Yeah, you're right. These closets are a little small. Or, yeah, my laundry's in the basement. I'd love to have it on the main floor, too. Or my laundry's on the main floor, and I do love it. I will say, it's it's pretty cool to have. Let them work through their own objections. They don't need you to do it for them. My husband and I looked at a house last year when we were sort of half-heartedly house shopping, and it really was awesome. I mean, it it was cool. And we were doing exactly that. We were walking through the house, and one of the things we said was, God, I don't like the master being right off the kitchen. And a real estate agent heard me say that, and I was kind of waiting for her to pounce on that and try to bust my objection. But she didn't. And it was so nice. I mean, I could tell she was listening, and I could tell she was processing it, but she didn't try to argue with me about what I thought was a very reasonable objection, that if you have kids over and they're making pizza at 1 o'clock in the morning, I don't want to hear it. Okay. Okay. Now, if they do say something that's clearly wrong, 
I've had this happen where they say, oh, my gosh, I don't like this. These Formica countertops are awful, and they're actually Corian. You know, you can certainly point that out. You know, if they're dead wrong about something, um, you can point that out, but, you know, do it politely and not argumentatively. Okay, um, one of the examples that I mentioned earlier was if a buyer wants to make an offer on a house that clearly isn't right for them. Now, this is not your decision to make, obviously, and they may change their minds as you're going through the process. And, you know, they say they want to live downtown, and then they see a house in the suburbs, and they say, gee, I think I want to live in the suburbs. But if you really feel like there's going to be some serious buyer's remorse, if here's where this used to happen to me in Denver all the time is Denver – you know, I, I worked in central Denver, and the homes, for the most part, and the price ranges I worked were fairly small. But, God, cute as heck. Okay, you know, you'd have these just utterly charming turn-of-the-century homes, and you'd walk in, and your heart would just melt because they were just so charming. But they were small. And so more than once, probably more than 25 times, I worked with buyers who said, I need this much space. We'd walk into, you know, a three. I need at least two bathrooms. I need a place to put my piano. I need a place to put, you know, grandma's armoire. We'd walk into a house, and they'd fall in love with it, and they'd say, well, I guess we really don't need that second bath, and I guess we could sell the piano. And when this happens, when you know there's going to be buyer's remorse, I'm not saying talk them out of, of doing it. And I'm not even saying to argue with them. But... Ask them to sleep on it. Now, if it's a hot market and you're going to lose the house overnight, I guess you know that's a different situation. But I don't think that's the, you know, the situation most of the time. It's just say, you know what, let's sleep on it. Okay, let's. Not you. Let's sleep on it. And then let's talk in the morning. And if you're ready to make an offer, then we'll do that. Okay. Um, so let's sleep on it is a great term to quiet them down and if they really really want the house like no we we have to have this house let's go do it now then fine you know maybe they will be okay with it but encourage them to to sleep on it here's something that worked beautifully for me when i was selling houses in denver and that and again i worked in in central denver where the homes were older they'd been through multiple renovations over the last hundred years um you know, the locations were very eclectic, you know, so it wasn't, these weren't cookie cutter neighborhoods where this style of home sold for this amount of money and this style of home sold for this amount of money, okay? Every house was unique. So pricing was a bit of a challenge because there wouldn't have been the exact same house sell in the last three months in the exact same location, not even close. So, you know, pricing really was an art in central Denver. So sometimes, you know, I'd come across the house, and gosh, it just showed so well. And the location was nice, but the numbers are telling me it needs to be this price. My seller's going, yeah, no, it needs to be this price, which isn't completely out of the ballpark, but it's higher than I'm comfortable with. It's higher than what my CMA is showing. So when that would happen, which was most of the time, I mean, it was a lot of the time, I would say, okay, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Okay, and here's, did you hear me? Let's do this. That works wonders. Let's do this. I use it all the time. Um, okay, let's do this. Let's try your price for two weekends. Okay, we'll get it on the market, you know, this week. We'll do an open house this weekend. 
um, we'll let it ride through the next weekend. And if it's not under contract or we're not getting serious interest, we'll just, you know, reduce the price down to, to more along these lines, okay? Now notice the let's, the we, okay? We'll do this. What you're saying when you're doing, when you're saying, you know, let's try it for two weekends. And I, and I, some other terms I throw in there is I don't want to leave your money. I don't want to leave money on the table. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I don't want to give your money away. You know, I say things like that to, you know, assure them that I am, I am on the same team as they are. And then if I need to, I'll talk about, you know, the magic of the first 30 days. But usually they get it. You don't have to go in and insult their intelligence. But you can say, you know, let's, let's give it two weekends. If we're not getting the activity we would like and we're not under contract, then we'll just take it back down to, you know, closer to this number. Will that work? Okay, deal. Most of the time they'll say yes. And then you need to, to make that happen two weeks down the line. Or here's the thing, and this might help you do this without feeling guilty about it, is it might sell, especially if it's a nice house and a good location and, and the numbers aren't quite justifying it. But I had that happen more than once where I got a little pushy about price. We ended up pricing where the seller wanted to and the darn thing sold with multiple offers. Okay, so you don't necessarily know, especially in a neighborhood where the, the inventory is, is fairly unique. You don't know. So um, anyway, that worked, that worked beautifully. Don't do, well, let's try it for a while. Or okay, we'll, we'll try it at your price, but if it doesn't work, we're going to have to do a price reduction. Okay, don't do that. That's just insulting and it's kind of rude. And it doesn't make you sound like you're a part of the team. All right, and then again, if the house sells, you kind of look, you kind of look bad. Okay, here's another time when you um, are helping your, you know, to help your help guiding your clients to the right decisions when it comes to preparing a home for market or dealing with inspections. But we're talking about the condition of the home, and a lot of people, you know, would ask me because I had great luck getting my sellers to um, have repairs done to the home before we went to market and also getting it staged. And people would say, well, how do you get your sellers to do that? Do you pay for it? No, I don't pay for it. What I did was a couple things. Is One, I had a good handyman, had a great handyman, and I had a great home stager. So it made it very easy for me to say, well, here's the magic word. Let's get Bob over here this weekend to take a look at everything and give us an estimate. Will that work? Or let's get Jerry, who was my home stager. Let's get Jerry over here to talk to you and you know, see what about what it would cost to, to get the home staging done and what it would entail. Those are magic words to help a seller get their home ready for market. Let's get so-and-so over here this weekend to take a look. Now, this also works when you're dealing with inspections. So if you get a laundry list of inspection items, you can say, yeah, I know it's a lot. Geez, wow, what are they thinking? They're buying a brand-new house? You know, you're help, helping them blow off steam. Then once you've blown off a little bit of steam, you say, you know what, let's get Bob over here and have him take a look and give us an idea of what it's going to take to, to address these. And then we can, decide, um, we can decide what we want to do. Okay, the last tips that I have today, I kind of put them at the end because they're things that we've talked about a lot around here. So if you've been around Cell Whistle for a long time and listened to teleseminars, some of these might sound familiar to you. But I wanted to make sure I got in some of the kind of newer concepts and ideas that we haven't talked about 
over and over again. So these last few, yeah, they're going to sound familiar if you've, if you've been around here a while. The next tip, then, is when you're talking with a seller about pricing, either up front or a price reduction down the road when the home isn't selling, one of the things I found tremendously valuable is not leading with the price reduction. Okay, we've been – well, or a lower price. Let's just talk about price reductions to keep it clean. But this also applies at the beginning when you're trying to set the price. But let's say that you've been on the market six weeks. The feedback then you know, has been that the house is overpriced or you haven't even had any showings or, you know, or even that you've had a ton of showings and no offers. And your inclination is to do what? Say, ah, price is too high. Let's go reduce the price. Well, if you've been around here much time at all, you know how I feel about that. I do not think it's a good idea to lead with a price reduction with a frustrated seller. Okay? Well, what else do you do? What else could there possibly be? Well, in all likelihood, there is something that seller could do instead of reducing the price to enhance the appeal of the home maybe even to the point that you won't have to reduce the price at all. Now, it may be something very simple like getting it cleaned, maybe painting, maybe new flooring, maybe some landscaping, maybe home staging. It may be something more complicated like um, adding a bathroom, even adding a garage. These are all things that I've done with my sellers, by the way. Fixing a structural issue. Because nine times out of ten, when there's a fixable problem in a house that's keeping it from selling, it's going to be cheaper to fix the problem than to overcome it with price. Now, I've done whole shows on this, so I'm not going to do that now, but just think about that. If there's a fixable problem that's keeping the, mar the house from selling, it's almost always cheaper to fix the problem than to price for the problem. Have an example of a, say, a one-bathroom house in a neighborhood where they expect two bathrooms. That's a tough sell. And you'll probably have to reduce the price $20,000 or more to overcome that problem. Whereas it's possible you could spend five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 and add a half bath on the main floor. Okay? And then you wouldn't have to reduce the price. Okay? I call it the solve the problem instead of reducing the price approach. Okay. Now... How this is helpful in guiding your client to the right decision is when you offer solutions to the problem that aren't related to a price reduction and the seller doesn't want to do them, then you can say, well, we can do this or we can reduce the price. If the seller says, let's just reduce the price. I don't feel like building a garage. You know, I don't feel like putting in a, in a bathroom. I don't want to paint. I don't want to change the flooring. I don't want to get it cleaned. I don't want to do the home staging. Okay, well then let's look at what a price reduction would be. Okay, so you have given, you have as a professional given them options and they've selected one. Okay, now they may be, you know, stubborn and not do any of them and, and that certainly happens, but um, when you give them options and you don't lead with a price reduction, because price reductions are easy for the agent and it makes us look kind of lazy. I mean, keep in mind, you're the one who agreed to or maybe even suggested the price in the first place. So six weeks later, you're saying, well, we're overpriced. Sign here on this price reduction. Seller's not going to be happy about that. So give them options. Okay. Um, next tip, again, you've probably all heard me say this before, 
is when you're doing your market analysis or when you're presenting your market analysis to a seller, either in the beginning or maybe down the road when you're, you're thinking about a price reduction or something, my CMAs, I never provided in the initial conversation, I never told them what I thought their house was worth. I would show them the data, which was very clear and thorough, but easy to read. I would show them the data and say, okay, let's, let's sleep on this. Okay, just, you know, look at this, take a look, you know, see what you think. Um, if you have questions about any of these other properties, feel free to ask. I'm familiar with most of them. Um, but here's the data. So let's sleep on it, and then we'll talk again in a day or two and, and see what we think about price. What we think about price. Let's talk again in a day or two. Okay, so because here's the thing. When you go in and talk to a seller, most of the time they want more for your house than you're going to tell them they can get. So if you go in with that, and say, well, I think, you're, I think the list price for your house needs to be $249.9, and they're thinking $279.9, and you go in and tell them that, boom, you're an adversary. I don't care how much they like you, you're an adversary. So don't go in with that. Give them the data. Review the data with them. Okay, let's, let's review, and then let's talk in a day or two and see what you think. Okay, it really works. Um, Okay, another example that I provided in the beginning of times that we can be adversarial with our clients or we're tempted, I'm sorry, we're tempted to give them advice that's not necessarily best for them is let's say that your seller gets an offer that's lower than they like, but they're, they're pretty desperate or you know, they'd really like to sell. And so they don't want to take the offer, but you know they will if you push them. Okay, I've been in that situation, and I have pushed. What I would rather you do, and I won't say I did this every time, I wish I had, is to say, you know what, let's go back. If you, if you want, let's go back and just ask for a little bit more, you know, a couple thousand dollars or whatever that, you know, whatever the number feels right. Let's, let's just counter a little bit. See if we can get you a little bit more money. Here's the thing. If, let's say on a $250,000 house, you go back and you ask for another, say, $5,000. If the buyer backs off and says, no way, I'm not doing that, chances are they didn't want the house all that badly anyway in that price range. I mean, and you'll have to you know, put in the own number, your own numbers for your own situations. But if they you know, just run away, they probably would have backed out anyway. Okay. If they really like the house enough to go through with the purchase, they can come back and say, no, our original offer stands, and your seller can go, well, we tried, you know. Or they may meet you in the middle, or they may take it. Any, any of these scenarios, you're going to come out looking like the hero because you put your paycheck at risk. And your seller realizes that, that you were looking out for them, not just taking an easy contract. And you're also looking out for them because I believe you should always counter an offer just to push back a little and keep the balance of power. Okay. Now, the seller may say, you know what, I can't risk it. No way, I want to sign this right now. Okay, that's fine. But you gave them the option. You didn't push. You gave them the option to counter. You even encouraged them to counter. And they, they didn't take that advice. So, um, you know, you come out looking good and everybody's happy with everybody. They made the decision. You didn't push it toward them. 
Okay. And so my last official tip of the day, and this sort of encapsulates everything and, and takes us back to the ground rules, but to as you're guiding your clients, always, always, always care about their best interests. I know it's, again, it's so tempting for you to care more about your paycheck. I, we've all done it. Okay. But your paycheck, I promise you, is better protected if you are clearly looking out for your client's best interest. You may not get the paycheck that Friday that you were counting on, but it will come back to reward you, you know, multifold if you're always doing the right thing by your client. Okay? So that's sort of the punchline of this whole show today is as you're helping your clients make decisions, always care about finding the best possible outcome for them, not for you, and you'll have a much better experience. So, okay, let me, um, looks like we've got some good questions on here. Let's see. I have a client interested in a house that's currently under contract. The agent will know if it came back on the market in a week. Can I tell my client we will go look at the house once we know it will be back on the market? So I think what the question, I think what what he or she is asking, let's see, the house, house that's under contract What's the right decision here as far as going to, to look at the house? That's a good question. I guess it would, some of it would depend on the market in your area. Do deals typically, you know, do they, do they tend to fall apart? Did this just go under contract so they still have lots of hoops to jump through, inspection contingencies? If they're through inspection, I mean, I would probably guide my client and find out, okay, are they through inspection? If they're through inspection, I mean, chances are what? Reasonably good, it's going to close. So I would probably just say, well, let's just sit tight. Let's, okay. <laughs> let's just sit tight on this one. It looks like it's going to close. I mean, if you want me to show it to you, I certainly will if they'll let me. But, um, you know, let's just focus our energy somewhere else. And, but if it just went under contract two days ago and they haven't done inspections, they haven't done much due diligence at all, shoot, I'd go look at it. Why not? I mean, it, it probably isn't the house for your buyer. I mean, the chances are, but then you were cooperative and helpful. So that's probably what I would do. Okay, my clients are renting. They want to buy a house. They've asked me to help them find a house to buy. Now they've stopped looking to buy a house. What can I do to help them again with their home, their, their home search? I've called them, sent emails, nothing. Okay, so what it sounds like is that they were tossing around the idea of buying a house, and now they've changed their mind. And, you know, this is where the, the fence pushing stuff comes in. Oh, I want to push them off the fence. I want to get them to buy a house. You can't get them to buy a house. They don't want to buy a house. Okay? So first what I would do is call them or email them, whatever they seem comfortable with, and say, you know what, I haven't heard back from you. I assume your plans have changed. That's fine. If you get to the point where, you know, you want to start looking for a house again, I'm ready when you are. Um, otherwise, I won't contact you again. I don't want to bother you. So um, um, I'll just wait to hear from you. Basically put the ball back in their court. A lot of times they will get back in touch with you when you take this approach, when you say, you know what, the ball's in your court, I'm not going to bother you anymore, but I'm, I'm ready when you are. And then what I would do is to go ahead and put them in whatever regular sphere of influence communications that you do, and so that they keep their, you know, your, con their contact your contact information handy, but you're not specifically pushing on them. But this is a great example of, you know, this is not a decision. I mean, if they ask you for your opinion, you know, should we buy now or should we continue to rent, then you can certainly give it. But I think they've made it very clear that they're not interested at this time. So, you know, just, just let it go. 
Heather's asking, do you use your CMA without the price as your listing presentation? Um, my listing presentation, and I hate the word presentation. I know it's what we call it, but I hate that word presentation because I, I think it needs to be a listing conversation, a listing interview. So I'd like to call it a proposal. But my CMA was very thorough, but it just didn't have a bottom line. You know, it didn't have a punchline, basically. Okay, here's what I think your house is worth. No, it was not my entire listing proposal. It was um, a part of it, but I also included other nuggets in there. And if you want to see a sample of my listing, um, my listing package, you can see that in the Sell Whistle VIP lounge over at the Sell Whistle website. Joni's asking, client asks you what you think it's worth, the house, and they're pushing for your opinion with the CMA. How do you handle that? You know, it's really not that hard to, I don't want to say put them off, but how do I say this? Well, like, okay, let me, let me back up. If they're saying to you, no, we want to know what it's worth now, what do you think? Well, then they're asking you the question. And it's okay then at that point to answer it. I would prefer not to answer it. I would prefer that they sit on the information. And if you approach this right and respectfully and say, you know, let's, let's sit on this. You know, we've had a good conversation tonight about your time frame and, you know, some other things. Because you've probably had discussed other things in this conversation about what they're willing to do to make improvements, when they want to go on the market, how accessible they're going to make the house. So you've gathered other information that maybe you want to stew over a little bit. Okay, and that's the professional thing for you to do is to process the information you've gathered along with the data and say, you know, here's what I'm thinking. But if they really are pressing you for a price and you feel like they've absorbed the data, then, you know, just kind of kind of do a judgment call on that. Say, well, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Okay, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know, 249 to 259, somewhere in there. How does that sound to you? What do you, what do you think? Let's see. And Deb's saying, you know, this is a good comment. Um, my, my original instinct was that the we, our, let's seemed a little presumptuous. Um, and, yeah, it does until you start doing it. And then it's natural. I mean, it's the most natural thing in the world because it gives you the feeling, you know, when you're saying let's do this, we can do this, um, us, you know, use the we, our, us, it really puts you on the same team with your seller, and that's going to feel natural because that's where you should be. It's not going to feel presumptuous. It's not going to feel weird. Okay, I promise you. Maybe just practice it. You know, wander around your house when nobody's there and, and practice some of these things. And as soon as they come naturally to you, I think it'll change. It will change your conversations with your clients. Okay. Um, <laughs> your house sounds like mine. How many dogs do you have? I have um, four resident dogs and a 2.8-pound foster dog right now, and she was one of the ones making a lot of the noise. So, yeah, four resident dogs, 280 pounds worth of dogs in this house. So, <laughs> um, Oh, lots of good questions here. So let's see. Alicia's saying, do you still use the two weeks price reduction strategy for a market with an average day on market of nine months? I have used 30 days. You know, it's going to depend on your market. What I found in Denver, regardless of the, the market activity, you know, the state of the market, was good houses, and this, is, this was the Denver market, a good house will still sell quickly. And this is a, you know, a soapbox for a different day, but just because the average days on market is nine months has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not, you know, your listing can sell in a week. So, you know, if you 
and, and I may be wrong on this in your market, okay, so take what this is worth, but if you were to do a days on market report of, say, a, a certain style of home in a neighborhood where homes are selling, and if nothing's selling, if nothing's selling, that's a totally different conversation. But if some houses are selling in the neighborhood, but the average days on market is 90 days, nine months, two years, whatever, you're still going to see houses that sold probably in a week, in two weeks, in a month, in 45 days. And you're going to have houses that took two years to sell, resulting in an average days on market somewhere in the middle. So, you know, what's it going to take for my listing to be the one that sells in a week or two weeks or three weeks? So, you know, I still believe the first 30 days of a listing are critical. And you don't want to be overpriced on day 31. But let's say that in your market, no matter how awesome a house is, it's only going to get one showing in the first month because you just don't have that much market activity. Then this strategy may not, may not apply. Um, you know, if you're in a resort market that simply, I mean, you're going to get two showings a year or something. I, I really don't know how to work with that. I've never had to do that. Um, but the first thing I would do would be to encourage you to take a look at the days on market statistic a little closer and say, wait a minute, are houses selling in a week, two weeks, 30 days? If they are, hey, it can be done. Okay, don't just think it can't be because most houses don't. Um, how do you feel about a client rushing to rushing to accept a lowball offer? Um, I mean, I think we talked about that a little bit. I mean, if they want to accept a lowball offer and they want out so badly, and and you really feel like that's what they want, then then fine. I mean, they can certainly do that. Um, if I just I don't believe that it's good practice to push a client to accept a lowball offer if you truly think that you can get more, okay? Present the option. You know, again, let's, you know, let's go back here. What do you think about that? You know, we'll just see what happens. They don't have to accept it. They can come back. But, you know, let's try this. And if they say, God, no, I want this under contract tonight. I want this gone. That's fine. That's fine. Let them do it. All right. I think I hit all of the questions, and we are about five minutes after the hour. So I think I'll go ahead and... Um, and um, close down for the day. So I appreciate all these great questions. I hope this was helpful. Remember I said in the beginning something about, you know, hopefully there will be something you get today that will change your career forever. So I don't know if I accomplished that, but one can always hope. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.